0: I'm Dan kurtz and this is the Foreign Affairs Interview.
1: I would say it's not that the recentralization of the economy caused the slowdown. I would say it was the slowdown that caused the recentralization of the economy.
0: There is no doubt that China's economy is struggling. After Xi Jinping ended zero COVID a year ago, most economists expected growth to surge. But that never really happened, and deeper problems became apparent. What are the exact causes of China's stagnation? That's a question of intense debate. The economists Zoe Liu, Michael Pettis, and Adam Posen each have their own answer. My colleague Justin Vote spoke with them at a November 14th discussion co-hosted by the Peterson Institute. China's future and the future of America's policy toward China hinge on which of their answers is the right one.
2: Good morning to everybody. Thanks for joining us. This is a, a dual event. It's a, a foreign affairs event launched for our November, December issue, but we're doing this in partnership with our friends at the Peterson Institute for International Economics as well. I like to think about what we're going to do this morning as uh, sort of like a, a game of Clue, a foreign affairs edition of Clue, the board game Clue, with the mystery that we're trying to solve being who killed the Chinese economy. And we're going to get a couple of different, you know, guesses at that. Uh, you know, was it zero COVID in the 2020s with the excessive state interventions? Maybe it was Chinese leader Xi Jinping in the 2010s with the civil-military fusion strategy, or maybe it was the CCP in the aughts with an outmoded growth model we're going to get variations on those guesses today uh, from our terrific panel of guests uh, adam posen and zoe lu and michael pettis take my word for it when i tell you that these are three of the very best experts on china and on the chinese economy i'm gonna start with adam because actually this entire sort of question was brought to the fore by this tremendous piece that adam wrote for the magazine a couple of months ago called The End of China's Economic Miracle. That's what sort of started this debate. And uh, the the piece that it, that is in uh, this issue of the magazine is what's called a response package, where we asked uh, some people to uh, respond to Adam's argument and to critique it, and then for Adam to respond to them. So in some ways, this is like a, a live action version of that response package. Adam, let, let me start with you. Can you explain for me and for all of us, the idea that you you put forward in your original article, which was that What China is struggling with is something that you refer to as economic long COVID. Can you explain what that is and the sources of it and and the ramifications for the Chinese economy?
3: So in my view, the stunning fact about China's economic slowdown is how little bounce China got after reopening in zero COVID. And most economies, including Japan, including other neighbors in Asia, but all high income economies saw some degree of big consumer rebound right after they reopened. In China, that rebound barely existed and then fizzled out. And so when I look at that, what I find more deeply is that you see a huge shift in Chinese household behavior. They stop buying durable goods, autos, expensive things. Small businesses, which are essentially owned by households, do the same thing. They start putting more and more money into bank accounts, into cash-like liquid substances, forms of assets, and in general, savings go up. But Importantly, they're moving towards liquidity. And I interpret this as a reaction to the zero COVID policy, which made China's Communist Party and Xi's more aggressive interventions in the face of the average Chinese person. For decades, there was what I called a no politics, no problem compact in China. This to me was a big part of the actual Chinese miracle, that from Deng until she takes power in 2013, if you weren't a democracy protester, if you weren't an oppressed Muslim minority or some other ethnic minority, basically you could go about your commercial life. You might have to pay a bribe. You might not always get the contract you wanted, but basically you were left alone as long as you did no politics. Starting with Xi's consolidating power in 2015, but especially with their zero COVID crackdown, average Chinese suddenly were subjected to Your company is closed. You can't go to your job. You've lost your business. And it's arbitrary by a given party member in a given city making up their mind. And this resonates in a way with the people that putting an Alibaba executive in jail or putting an anti corruption campaign does not, because that's just abstract leaders. And so when we have this, this breaks the compact. And it's very hard for an autocrat, which is what she and the Communist Party are, to reestablish credibility. They can say, oh, gee it's, it, we did it just because of COVID and look at all the millions of lives we saved. That it's still not credible that they're going to go back, especially since there's a laundry list of ways in which she and the party have been more and more intrusive in recent years. And the two key points to go with that, this behavior, this, this zero long, long COVID, economic long COVID, meaning the non-responsive consumers to incentives because they're hoarding liquidity, they're trying not to get expropriated, they're basically scared. This occurred well before the breakdown of the real estate market. The real estate market is on top of that, doesn't help, but it occurred and is independent of that. And in fact, the behavior of moving into savings and out of durable goods is not necessarily what the real estate market crash would do. And the other point is this goes with a turn against the private sector, not just the big fancy, you know, platform companies, but against the private sector more generally in China, which is marked and is different than the previous 30 years in China. So to me, we have economic long COVID in China. The ability to stimulate the economy is very limited, even though they keep trying. And therefore, there's pressure for capital, people, talent, and money to exit. And that's the direction I think policy needs to think about.
2: And so the, the the sort of metaphor here that you're that you're making with economic long COVID is that it's not the virus itself that that sort of has caused these lingering symptoms, but but the the kind of overactive immune response. On the part of the state that has stuck with us, right? That's sort of that sort you, of the Thank way. you for
3: bringing it out. Yes, that <laughs> yeah, is no, what I good. wanted to convey.
2: Sure, good, good. Zoe, you you uh, you wrote about this. Obviously, you you took up Adam's uh, uh, article and 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 you wrote a, a really interesting critique of it. If I understand your critique correctly, some of what Adam has written, you you sort of agree with, but the emphasis is slightly different. I'd love to hear your kind of basic take on the story that Adam tells about this and where your view of it differs.
4: Really, I understand this situation as you know, President Xi Jinping, he did not assemble China's economic time bomb, but I do think he should be blamed for having shortened the fuse. And if, if I can explain this a little bit more, you know, this is how I view the Chinese economic problems. I view it as having the problem of four Ds, uh, including debt, demographics, demand, and decoupling. I think Professor Pettis can explain this in terms. The, the structural problems way much better than I do, especially in terms of the debt demand demographics and all that. Uh, what I think pro- that President Xi Jinping's, uh, you know, how the, his share of the responsibility here is that it is really with regard to how he, his policies accelerated the, for, the, 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 the trajectory of decoupling. And, um, you know, a lot of these the four Ds that I talked about, you know, debt, demand, demographics, decoupling, a lot of these problems have long been evident, as Professor Pettis noticed, and he, he, he's written uh, widely about this. And President Xi Jinping and his predecessor, they were aware of these problems, but they really didn't do enough to mitigate these longstanding issues. So therefore, I think it's unfair to blame Xi Jinping entirely for creating all these problems or for the lack of economic recovery post-COVID. And that's why I, I, I think he didn't assemble the time bomb. However, really his res- responsibility is in terms of the last decoupling. So this is where I think I agree with um, uh, Dr. Poston in terms of you know, the, the, the policy missteps that he has he did um, have been highly consequential. But I would differ with Dr. Poston in terms of in terms of you know, the, the role of the decoupling, or for that matter, the the Identifying COVID nineteen as a critical juncture, I would argue that uh, actually, you know, the critical juncture happened several years before um, zero COVID, the, the COVID nineteen as well as zero COVID, because uh, if you remember back in two thousand thirteen, President Xi Jinping already uh, put out his own personal explanation, his own explanation to what does he mean by what 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 he thinks deepening reform and opening up means. And in, in, in writing and in his speech, he's specifically talking about, you know, the, for, for him, reform and open up really is about the emphasis of the state sector, the, the leadership of the party in, um, you know, economics and finance. And, you know, in a way he has been quite honest. And then why this matters for decoupling and why this relates to COVID? I, I would say that, you know, the net effect of zero COVID was actually to make President Xi Jinping overconfident that his assertive foreign policy could be persuasive. And, you know, many of us probably still remember the initial shock of COVID, uh, the Chinese government response has been was relatively successful in terms of control, the virus, the spread of the virus compared with the rest of the world. And in a way, uh, the Chinese government response actually is very much reflective of their, you know, the governance philosophy. In Chinese, crisis is the same term. It, like It's like crisis and opportunity. is Wei and Ji. And in, in a way, it's very much like Sun Tzu kind of thinking. In chaos, there is great opportunity. And this is also where I think President Xi Jinping's draconian 0 COVID policies actually created a dent, not just for himself, but exacerbated, exacerbated, not created, the previous, you know, demographic debt and demand problem. You know, before COVID or before 2019, when we think about the Chinese economy, it looks like a Monet. It's like the impressionist painting. It looks beautiful from afar, but it looks like a jumbled mess up close. But after COVID, the problems still exist, but it's now like a Jackson Pollock in the sense that it looks like a jumbled mess from afar and a jumbled mess up close. So from that perspective, I really don't think President Xi Jinping should be blamed for the lack of recovery or for the assemble the time bomb, but he actually did shorten the fuse.
2: I like this. We've moved from a sort of medical metaphor to an artistic one. Just in defense of Jackson Pollock, I, you know, <laughs> Chase May Dipper, uh, you know, some people like those jumbled messes. Um, that's interesting, though, because what I, I also I, I'm thinking about what you said about the overconfidence, that it's it's good to remind ourselves that in the early phases of uh, the pandemic, you know, th- there was reason for the Chinese uh, government and for the CCP to believe that what they had done was sort of correct and, and they were doing so much better. Um, that's an interesting thing that I think we tend to forget in our, you know, in our presentism. Speaking of presentism, I think you know, Michael, your contribution here and and your critique, if I understand it again correctly, and you can you can explain this more thoroughly, is that you see the roots of of some of uh, the problems that China is now facing far earlier than both Adam and Zoe, and sort of not only see them there, but believe that they were sort of foreseeable and even foreseen. Um, can you explain exactly what you mean by that and it, it, whereas uh, uh, Adam has talked about the the turning point being or, or maybe not the turning point but the point of no return being 2020, Zoe has talked a little bit about 2015 and and, and 2013 with uh, she's uh, arrival on the scene you put I think you seem to put this turning point closer to around 2006 and I'm curious about what are what are the factors what was happening then that sort of cast the die in your point of view
1: Sure. Well, thanks very much, uh, Justin, and thanks, Adam and, and Zoe. Um, the, the, the other famous Adam, uh, Adam Twos, uh, refers to me as the as the structuralist, and, and I think that's accurate. I think it's a much more structural argument as to what happened with China. Basically, the Chinese growth model, the sort of the high savings, high investment model, is not particularly Chinese. Many countries have followed it, and it always seems to follow a pretty similar path. Um, You have a period of very rapid healthy growth, followed by a period of very rapid unhealthy growth driven by a surge in debt and then a difficult adjustment. And one of my favorite economists, uh, Albert Hirschman, talked about this way, way back in, in the 1970s. And what he argued is that this is what happens to a successful development model. A successful development model, by definition, makes itself obsolete because it resolves the problems it was designed to address. And then you need to shift the model. And if you don't shift the model, you end up developing a different set of imbalances. And he also noted that almost no one shifts the model. And the reason, he argued, is because a successful development model creates a series of institutions that disproportionately benefit certain constituencies that become very powerful. And it's very hard to shift the model because of the uh, blocking efforts by those constituencies. Well, you know, he died before the whole China story, but he could have been talking about China. And so what I would argue is that this high investment model made a lot of sense in the, in the 1980s and 1990s when China was possibly the most underinvested economy in the world. But with the fastest growth rate of investment, they closed the gap pretty quickly between what they had and what they could productively absorb. Now, at that point, you're supposed to shift to a different model, but no one ever does not Brazil in the 1970s, not Japan in the 1980s, not the Soviet Union in the 1960s. And that's when you end up with very high investment rates that are no longer productive. So when that happens, you start to see uh, debt grow faster than GDP. So this is a pretty old story. I would argue that most people would say the problem began in 2009, 2010. I think it started earlier than that, but, but it doesn't matter. At some point, we started to see this unsustainable acceleration of debt in order to maintain high growth rates. And here's where another economist that I cite a lot, Janice Cornai, is very important. Corneille argued that in these types of economies, you have a shift from the hard-budget-constrained part of the economy to the soft-budget, as long as you want high growth rates. Because the hard-budget-constrained part of the economy, for example, the private sector won't systematically engage in non-productive behavior. If they do, they go bankrupt. So if you want to maintain higher growth rates than the real economy can deliver, then you have to increasingly shift activity to the, the soft budget constraint, which in China was largely local governments and the property sector. And so as a result, the problems in China predate uh, 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 Xi Jinping. In fact, Back in 2012, remember when Xi Jinping became a party secretary, we all agreed this was a good thing because he was a pragmatist and a market guy. And back then, I argued that if you looked at the historical precedents, what was very likely to happen was a recentralization of economic decision making because the conflict over adjustment would be so difficult that without a recentralization of power, they would probably fail to do it. So I would argue that all of this was already baked into the pie before COVID. Now, I agree with Adam and Zoe that COVID mattered. And I think it mattered because it accelerated what was already a pretty bad process, not just in China, but in the US, Europe, and and the rest of the world. So we saw the debt pick up even more rapidly. And more importantly, during that period, we saw the household share of GDP drop And what was particularly bad, we saw income inequality increase, which put even more downward pressure on consumption. So I would argue that that's the basic problem. And, you know, if I could summarize it in a snappy phrase, I would say it's not that the recentralization of the economy caused the slowdown. I would say it was the slowdown that caused the recentralization of the economy.
2: That's interesting. And it, you you have the causal arrows reversed, in a sense, from where Adam does. You see the same factors, but you see them affecting each other in, in a different yeah. sequence almost. Can I add? Yeah, please, please jump in. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And I, I just want to affirm Dr. Liu and Professor Pettis's characterizations. These are very different points of view. As you just said, Justin, causality runs the other way. I I would make two points. I think First, the structural, the, the heavy duty structuralist version, which Michael argues for, is too dismissive of the agency of both the party and the average Chinese household. If you look at the period, even including the period Michael talks about, there's an enormous growth in private sector employment, in returns on private sector assets, and in, in private sector investment, as my colleague Nick Lardy documented in Market So for now. And then starting in 2015 and accelerating, the, she turns it around. But then again, the households don't react until we have the zero COVID in the way that I identify. And so to me, while the structural problems are there, it both exaggerates the determinism coming out of the structural problems and also frankly, their magnitude. All economies slow down, all economies accumulate over time. There was nothing inevitable that you couldn't have put more money in the private sector and gotten higher returns than you did the last several years. Anyway, just to say, I think Michael and Zoe are being perfectly fair contrasting views, but just that would be my point of difference. I don't think their model fits the, the developments that I saw.
2: Right. Let me let me ask you to to, to clarify one thing, though, and then I'll and I'll ask and, and that will probably generate a response either from Zoe or Michael. You you say this wasn't inevitable. And, and I guess what I'm curious then is that it, it's really sort of a political question. And I'm wondering if it wasn't inevitable. Why were the choices made that that you see, you know, as having led to this point? that that where there was agency you you talked about the the household uh spending patterns what about on the on the policy question what was the particular policy choice and why do you think that was the choice that the ccp opted for instead of the other choices that presumably you think might have if not averted the the current situation at least pushed it further off into into the future
3: i'm not a good enough chinese expert i'm a macroeconomist to do that but i would have i think there are two clear contributing factors. One is that not to probe or personalize this, but in an autocratic system, the views of the leader do matter. And Xi's views clearly from the time he took office, but particularly from 2015 forward, were that the market had gone too far, the party had gotten soft, the people had gotten soft, and you had to deal with it. A second factor is You can argue how much instead of what's something none of the three of us have mentioned yet, the external environment. How much, uh, although Zoe makes reference to the the remilitarization needs, to be fair. So how much this is a reaction to perceived threats or external ambitions, and that pushes you in this direction. But I think it's ultimately mostly about control. And that's why, again, I tried to speak of the, the long COVID. It's the immune system response, as you kindly invoked it's not because the communist party ever was not in control it was that the communist party's self-control broke down that unlike dung and his successors she what broke this no politics no problem compact and it may i don't know if it's inevitable but it's very hard for an autocratic system a party to resist that temptation for decades it's amazing to me how long china did
2: Right. Yeah. That's one of the things that comes through in your, in your, in your piece originally is that it's, it's sort of like they were uh, it, the image that I had in my mind. And I, I almost put this in, in the edit and I decided it was, it, it was not, it wasn't okay for foreign affairs. But I'll do it now though. Is it, it was that image of, you know, the old Roadrunner cartoons, yeah, but right, you know, where Wiley e. Coyote kind of goes out over the, uh, over the edge of the road and is sort of Running on 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 air until suddenly he realizes and drops. That's kind of the the image that I got from your analysis of you know recent Chinese economic history. So I, I want to go back to Michael in a second, but so Adam mentioned something that I did want to bring in because one thing that your essay talks about is this question of she's kind of a broader foreign policy and its effect on some of this the sort of uh, the re-embrace of nationalism, what you describe as this civil military fusion and its effect on the Chinese economy. Can you pick up where Adam left off there and, and kind of talk a little bit about that context in which this happened? Because that's also on our minds now, I think, with um, with the APEC uh, uh, summit happening this week and with the meeting between Biden and Xi. And I'm sure that some of our uh, attendees are going to want to hear a little bit about that. So it'd be interesting to hear your take on that.
4: I do think President Xi Jinping's elevation of the civil military fusion strategy to the level of national strategy. Can you just uh,
2: explain what that is quickly, what, what you mean by that?
4: So, so, this did not. This so-called strategy did not start from Xi Jinping. It's the whole, it, it the the whole civil-military fusion started in, during Hu Jintao's era. The idea is to empower or basically mobilize China, the a whole whole of a society, whole of a nation um, element blurring the, str- the nature of military and the private sector and the civilian sector in terms of technological advancement and technological uh, self-sufficiency. So President Xi Jinping really a- elevated that into uh, as to the level of national strategy and combining that with the Made in China 2050. So a lot of this really triggered alerted uh western uh, politicians and in particular here u.s policymakers in washington dc and in response u.s policymakers uh, accelerated a lot of the pre-existing mechanisms such as export control such as investment screening and now we are in an era of outbound investment screening so if Xi Jinping weren't if president Xi Jinping did not put this accelerated a lot of these policies to such a higher level. I I do not think it would trigger such a, a response from the United States. And as a consequence, what used to benefit China's economic rise on the one hand, international confidence in the Chinese economy, as well as policy predictability. And then on the other hand, China's easy access and a cheap at a lower cost to uh, advanced technologies in the market. Those things are no longer there. And I would agree with, the prof, uh, with, with Dr. Poston in that, you know, President Xi Jinping, a lot of his policy misstep did matter. But I would say that it matters before COVID and more specifically, he removed the predictability and the lack of political drama that used to benefit the Chinese economy.
0: We'll be back after a short break.
4: The Foreign Affairs Interview is brought to you by Foreign Affairs Magazine. The source for authoritative discussion on global events, straight from the world's leading experts. This holiday season, give a gift subscription to your favorite reader. Visit foreign slash gift and give the gift that lasts all year.
2: Michael, both you and, and Adam sort of tell this, this story that to my kind of layperson's mind, it brings to to mind this expression that at least when i was you know a college student i i i learned which was the middle income trap right that there was this kind of problem where as you put it a system was developed to solve a certain set of problems and then once it it solved those problems it became obsolete and you had to you had to switch is that essentially what you're describing is that another name for what you're describing or is that different from what you're talking about and regardless of whether what the answer is there i guess my question for you is if China missed its opportunity, or the opportunity it had some time in the aughts, to shift growth models. Do you only get one chance as a as a regime uh, type, or do you, is this the kind of thing that you can you can kind of uh, you can try again? You can keep adapting. What what's your what's your view of that?
1: Well, t- to address the middle income trap, it's not a phrase that I really like because it seems to me that we often trot it out to mean we don't know, so it must be the middle income trap. But, you know, I would call it an investment trap because it affected all countries that had very, very high investment growth models. Japan, which is certainly not a middle-income country, it's quite a rich country, also went through this trap. Poorer countries like Brazil in the 1960s and 70s and so on. There was about a dozen, two dozen countries that went through this growth model. And what's really striking is how they all follow the same pattern. You have very rapid healthy growth followed by very rapid unhealthy growth followed by a very difficult adjustment. And the adjustment can range. Uh, you know, I talk about the American style adjustment, which Brazil followed too, which is a rebalancing in the form of a crisis. So the United States in the 1930s, you'll remember GDP contracted by 35 percent, household income contracted by half of that, brutally painful, but it rebalanced. Mm. And it was quite quick. In Japan, what we saw is that GDP growth went from roughly 4 or 5% to around half a percent. Consumption growth dropped by a lot less. I don't have the per capita numbers, but the per capita numbers look like they dropped from around 3% to 2%. So it wasn't as brutal an adjustment, but it took a very long period of time. And what's really striking about this, and Darren Asimoglu and James Robinson do a series of very interesting papers on this, What's really striking is how politically disruptive it's always been, except for two types of uh, political systems. They argue highly competitive political systems, which seems to mean robust democracies, and then highly non-competitive, which basically seems to mean a highly centralized autocracy. By the way, an example of the latter was China in the 1980s, uh, a series of reforms ferociously opposed by the party, but with a highly centralized leadership, they were able to implement the uh, the reforms anyway. So I think that's a really important part of it. We always see that, and that's why I argued that if you were going to advise Xi back in 2012, you would have said, you know, either become a democracy or re-centralize power. That's that's part of the process. Now uh, I, I I realize my my answer is getting uh, getting a little bit long, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the rise and fall of the private sector. What really seems to drive the private sector in China has been a combination of domestic consumption and exports. And so domestic consumption bottomed out around 2010, 2011 with household consumption at a a truly surreal 34% of GDP. And after that, we started to see a partial recovery of consumption and the private sector benefited from that. But that more or less stopped a couple of years before COVID and during COVID we saw Again, the consumption share of GDP go down, and that's much more important than exports. And so I would argue that what's really driving the expansion and contraction of the private sector has really been the distribution of income to the household sector. I think that's what's really been key.
2: I want to thank all three of you. I want to thank our friends at the Peterson Institute, and I want to thank everybody who attended this morning. Best of luck to you, and thanks again.
0: Thank you for listening. You can find the articles that we discussed on today's show at foreignaffairs.com. The Foreign Affairs interview is produced by Kate Brannon, Julia Fleming-Dresser, and Molly McEnany. Special thanks also to Grace Finlayson, Caitlin Joseph, Nora Revenaugh, Asher Ross, Gabrielle Sierra, and Marcus Zacharia. Our theme music was written and performed by Robin Hilton. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review it. We release a new show every other Thursday. Thanks again for tuning in.